Third Reverie, Part Three of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lighted with a match. I hate a match. I feel sure that brimstone matches were never made in heaven, and it is sad to think that, with few exceptions, matches are all of them tipped with brimstone. But my taper having burned out, and the coals being all dead upon the hearth, a match is all that is left to me. All matches will not blaze on the first trial, and there are those that with the most indefatigable coaxings never show a spark. They may indeed leave in their trail phosphorescent streaks, but you can no more light your cigar at them than you can kindle your heart at the covered wife-trails which the infernal gossiping old matchmakers will lay in your path. Was there ever a bachelor of seven-and-twenty, I wonder, who has not been haunted by pleasant old ladies and trim, excellent, good-natured married friends, who talk to him about nice matches, very nice matches, matches which never go off? And who, pray, has not had some kind old uncle to fill two sheets for him, perhaps in the time of heavy postages, about some most eligible connection, of highly respectable parentage. What a delightful thing, surely, for a withered bachelor to bloom forth in the dignity of an ancestral tree! What a precious surprise for him, who has all his life worshipped the wing-heeled Mercury, to find on a sudden a great stock of preserved and most respectable Punates? In God's name, thought I, puffing vehemently, what is a man's heart given him for, if not to choose, where his heart's blood, every drop of it, is flowing? Who is going to damn these billowy tides of the soul, whose role is ordered by a planet greater than the moon, and that planet, Venus? Who is going to shift this vein of my desires, when every breeze that passes in my heaven is keeping it all the more strongly to its fixed bearings? Besides this, there are the money-matches, urged upon you by disinterested bachelor friends, who would be very proud to see you at the head of an establishment, and I must confess that this kind of talk has a pleasant jingle about it, and is one of the cleverest aids to a bachelor's daydreams that can well be imagined. And let not the pouting lady condemn me without a hearing. It is certainly cheerful to think, for a contemplative bachelor, that the pretty ermine which so sets off the transparent hue of your imaginary wife, or the lace which lies so bewitchingly upon the superb roundness of her form, or the graceful bodice, trimmed to a line, which is of such exquisite adaptation to her lithe figure, will be always at her command, nay, that these are only units among the chameleon hues, under which you shall feed upon her beauty. I want to know if it is not a pretty cabinet picture for fancy to luxuriate upon, that of a sweet wife who is cheating hosts of friends into love, sympathy, and admiration, by the modest munificence of her wealth? Is it not rather agreeable to feed your hopeful soul upon that abundance which, while it supplies her need, will give a range to her loving charities, which will keep from her brow the shadows of anxiety? and will sublime her gentle nature by adding to it the grace of an angel of mercy? 
is it not rich in those days when the pestilent humours of bachelorhood hang heavy on you to foresee in that shadowy realm where hope is a native the quiet of a home made splendid with attractions and made real by the presence of her who bestows them upon my word thought i as i continued puffing such a match must make a very grateful lighting of one's inner sympathies nor am i prepared to say that such associations would not add force to the most abstract love imaginable think of it for a moment what is it that we poor fellows love we love if one may judge for himself over his cigar gentleness beauty refinement generosity and intelligence and far above these a returning love made up of all these qualities and gaining upon your love day by day and month by month like a sunny morning gaining upon the frosts of night but wealth is a great means of refinement and it is a security for gentleness since it removes disturbing anxieties and it is a pretty promoter of intelligence since it multiplies the avenues for its reception and it is a good basis for a generous habit of life it even equips beauty neither hardening its hand with toil nor tempting the wrinkles to come early but whether it provokes greatly that returning passion that abnegation of soul that sweet trustfulness and abiding affection which are to clothe your heart with joy is far more doubtful wealth while it gives so much asks much in return and the soul that is grateful to mammon is not over ready to be grateful for intensity of love it is hard to gratify those who have nothing left to gratify heaven help the man who having wearied his soul with delays and doubts or exhausted the freshness and exuberance of his youth by a hundred little dallyings with love consigns himself at length to the issues of what people call a nice match whether of money or of a family heaven help you i brush the ashes from my cigar when you begin to regard marriage as only a respectable institution and under the advices of staid old friends begin to look about you for some very respectable wife you may admire her figure and her family and bear pleasantly in mind the very casual mention which has been made by some of your penetrating friends that she has large expectations you think that she would make a very capital appearance at the head of your table nor in the event of your coming to any public honour would she make you blush for her breeding she talks well exceedingly well and her face has its charms especially under a little excitement her dress is elegant and tasteful and she is constantly remarked upon by all your friends as a nice person some good old lady in whose pew she occasionally sits on a sunday or to whom she has sometimes sent a papier-mache card-case for the show-box of some dorcas benevolent society thinks with a sly wink that she would make a fine wife for somebody she certainly has an elegant figure and the marriage of some half-dozen of your old flames warns you that time is slipping and your chances failing and in the pleasant warmth of some after-dinner mood you resolve with her image in her prettiest polices drifting across your brain that you will marry now comes the pleasant excitement of the chase and whatever family dignity may surround her 
only adds to the pleasurable glow of the pursuit. You give an hour more to your toilette, and a hundred or two more a year to your tailor. All is orderly, dignified, and gracious. Charlotte is a sensible woman, everybody says, and you believe it yourself. You agree in your talk about books and churches and flowers. Of course she has good taste, for she accepts you. The acceptance is dignified, elegant, and even courteous. You receive numerous congratulations, and your old friend Tom writes you that he hears you are going to marry a splendid woman. And all the old ladies say, what a capital match! And your business partner, who is a married man, and something of a wag, sympathizes sincerely. Upon the whole, you feel a little proud of your arrangement. You write to an old friend in the country that you are to marry presently Miss Charlotte of such a street, whose father was something very fine in his way, and whose father before him was very distinguished. You add, in a postscript, that she is easily situated and has expectations. Your friend, who has a wife that he loves, and that loves him, writes back kindly, hoping you may be happy, and hoping so yourself, you light your cigar, one of your last bachelor cigars, with the margin of his letter. The match goes off with a brilliant marriage, at which you receive a very elegant welcome from your wife's spinster cousins, and drink a great deal of champagne with her bachelor uncles. And as you take the dainty hand of your bride, very magnificent under that bridal wreath, and with her face lit up by a brilliant glow, your eye and your soul, for the first time, grow full. And as your arm circles that elegant figure, and you draw her toward you, feeling that she is yours, there is a bound at your heart that makes you think your soul life is now whole and earnest. All your early dreams and imaginations come flowing on your thought like bewildering music, and as you gaze upon her, the admiration of that crowd, it seems to you that all that your heart prizes is made good by the accident of marriage. Ah, thought I, brushing off the ashes again, bridal pictures are not home pictures, and the hour at the altar is but a poor type of the waste of years. Your household is elegantly ordered. Charlotte has secured the best of housekeepers, and she meets the compliments of your old friends who come to dine with you with a suavity that is never at fault. And they tell you, after the cloth is removed, and you sit quietly smoking in memory of the olden times, that she is a splendid woman. Even the old ladies who come for occasional charities think Madame a pattern of a lady and so think her old admirers, whom she receives still with an easy grace, that half puzzles you. And as you stand by the ballroom door, at two of the morning, with your Charlotte's shawl upon your arm, some little panting fellow will confirm the general opinion by telling you that Madame is a magnificent dancer, and Monsieur le Comte will praise extravagantly her French. You are grateful for all this, but you have an uncommonly serious way of expressing your gratitude. You think you ought to be a very happy fellow, and yet long shadows do steal over your thought, and you wonder that the sight of your Charlotte in the dress you used to admire so much does not scatter them to the winds, but it does not. 
You feel coy about putting your arm around that delicately robed figure. You might derange the plating of her dress. She is civil toward you, and tender toward your bachelor friends. She talks with dignity, adjusts her lace cap, and hopes you will make a figure in the world, for the sake of the family. Her cheek is never soiled with a tear, and her smiles are frequent, especially when you have some spruce young fellows at your table. You catch sight of occasional notes, perhaps, whose superscription you do not know, and some of her admirers' attentions become so pointed and constant that your pride is stirred. It would be silly to show jealousy, but you suggest to your dear, as you sip your tea, the slight impropriety of her action. Perhaps you fondly long for some little scene as a proof of wounded confidence, but no, nothing of that. She trusts, calling you my dear, that she knows how to sustain the dignity of her position. You are too sick at heart for comment or for reply. And is this the intertwining of soul of which you had dreamed in the days that are gone? Is this the blending of sympathies that was to steal from life its bitterness, and spread over care and suffering the sweet ministering hand of kindness and of love? Aye, you may well wander back to your bachelor club, and make the hours long at the journals, or at play, killing the flagging lapse of your life. Talk sprightly with your old friends, and mimic the joy you have not, or you will wear a bad name upon your hearth and head. Never suffer your Charlotte to catch sight of the tears which in bitter hours may start from your eye, or to hear the sighs which in your times of solitary musings may break forth sudden and heavy. Go on counterfeiting your life as you have begun. It was a nice match, and you are a nice husband. But you have a little boy, thank God, toward whom your heart runs out freely, and you love to catch him in his respite from your well-ordered nursery, and the tasks of his teachers alone and to spend upon him a little of that depth of feeling which through so many years has scarce been stirred. You play with him at his games. You take him to your bosom. But, Papa, he says, see how you have tumbled my collar. What shall I tell Mama? Tell her, my boy, that I love you. Ah, thought I, my cigar was getting dull and nauseous. Is there not a spot in your heart? that the gloved hand of your elegant wife has never reached, that you wish it might reach? You go to see a faraway friend. His was not a nice match. He was married years before you, and yet the beaming looks of his wife and his lively smile are as fresh and honest as they were years ago, and they make you ashamed of your disconsolate humour. Your stay is lengthened, but the home letters are not urgent for your return. Yet they are marvellously proper letters, and rounded with a French adieu. You could have wished a little scrawl from your boy at the bottom, in the place of the postscript, which gives you the names of a new opera troupe, and you hint as much, a very bold stroke for you. Ben, she says, writes too shamefully. And at your return there is no great anticipation of delight. In contrast with the old dreams that a pleasant summer's journey has called up, your parlour as you enter it, so elegant, so still, so modish, 
seems the charnel house of your heart. By and by you fall into weary days of sickness. You have capital nurses, nurses highly recommended, nurses who never make mistakes, nurses who have served long in the family. But alas for that heart of sympathy, and for that sweet face, shaded with your pain, like a soft landscape with flying clouds, you have none of them. Your pattern wife may come in, from time to time, to look after your nurse, or to ask after your sleep, and glide out, her silk dress rustling upon the door, like dead leaves in the cool night breezes of winter. Or, perhaps, after putting this chair in its place, and adjusting to a more tasteful fold that curtain, she will ask you, with a tone that might mean sympathy, if it were not a stranger to you, if she can do anything more. Thank her, as kindly as you can, and close your eyes and dream, or rouse up to lay your hand upon the head of your little boy, to drink in health and happiness from his earnest look, as he gazes strangely upon your pale and shrunken forehead. Your smile, even, ghastly with long-suffering, disturbs him. There is no interpreter, save the heart, between you. Your parched lips feel strangely to his flushed, healthful face, and he steps about on tiptoe, at a motion from the nurse, to look at all those rosy-coloured medicines upon the table, and he takes your cane from the corner, and passes his hand over the smooth ivory head, and he runs his eye along the wall, from picture to picture, till it rests on one he knows, a figure in bridal dress, beautiful, almost fond, and he forgets himself, and says aloud, There's Mama." The nurse puts her finger to her lip. You waken from your doze, to see where your eager boy is looking, and your eyes, too, take in much as they can of that figure now shadowy to your fainting vision, doubly shadowy to your fainting heart. From day to day you sink from life. The physician says the end is not far off. Why should it be? There is very little elastic force within you to keep the end away. Madame is called, and your little boy. Your sight is dim, but they whisper that she is beside your bed, and you reach out your hand, both hands. You fancy you hear a sob, a strange sound. It seems as if it came from distant years, a confused, broken sigh, sweeping over the long stretch of your life, and a sigh from your heart, not audible, answers it. Your trembling fingers clutch the hand of your little boy, and you drag him toward you, and move your lips as if you would speak to him, and they place his head near you so that you feel his fine hair brushing your cheek. My boy, you must love your mother. Your other hand feels a quick, convulsive grasp, and something like a tear drops upon your face. Good God, can it be indeed a tear? You strain your vision, and a feeble smile flits over your features as you seem to see her figure, the figure of the painting, bending over you, and you feel a bound at your heart, the same bound that you felt on your bridal morning, the same bound which you used to feel in the springtime of your life. Only one, rich, full bound of the heart, that is all. My cigar is out. I could not have lit it again if I would. It was wholly burned. 
"'Aunt Tabithy,' said I, as I finished reading, "'may I smoke now under your rose-tree?' Aunt Tabithy, who had laid down her knitting to hear me, smiled, brushed a tear from her old eyes, said, "'Yes, Isaac,' and having scratched the back of her head with the disengaged needle, resumed her knitting. End of Reverie 3, Part 3